Uh, it does work better if I have the microphone on, doesn't it? <clears throat> well, I am so excited to be starting a brand new series today. We are starting a series entitled Everyday Jesus, and this series is going to look at different parts of the time that Jesus was ministering with his disciples that aren't the ones we normally turn to. We may turn to them. We, they're not unfamiliar, but they're not the ones we focus on because we're normally looking at what are the big spectacular things. Feeding of the 5,000, for example. Jesus feeding a bunch of people. Boy, wouldn't that be nice when we have a church dinner and suddenly all we need is a, a few loaves and, and fishes. We just have those there. Start breaking them apart. We can feed the entire city of St. Charles. It'd be great, wouldn't it? That'd be amazing. We focus on those sorts of times. And they're amazing, and there's a good reason why we focus on those times. But it doesn't always help us in everyday life, because we think about the normal everyday troubles that we face, the normal everyday challenges that we face, and we wonder, does Jesus really understand what those are like? The answer is he does. And we see that over and over again throughout gospel ministry stories, but also the rest of the New Testament that talks about what Jesus did during his earthly ministry. All this, it it keeps reinforcing this truth that Christians have always confessed, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, that he faced all the same things we face, yet without sin. So we're going to spend some time thinking about those everyday sorts of things that, that time that doesn't seem notable at all, except maybe in the stress it lays upon us. Think about how Jesus understands those times too. Because here's the important thing. That's where we spend most of our lives, and that's where we spend most of our time that we're going to be able to show Jesus to other people. So if we think about how Jesus dealt with those times, we start to understand better how he wants us to deal with those times too. As we talk about that tonight, let's go ahead and come before God in prayer, and then we'll dig in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us, that you sent your Son into this world. And and thank you for what we just celebrated last weekend on Easter, that, that Jesus not only came into the world, Jesus not only suffered like we we suffer, he suffered far more. And he not only faced death like we will face but he overcame it. But in the meantime, in the experience of earth, we know that we have a Savior who knows and understands the sorts of things that we too experience. And we pray, Lord, as as we dwell on these things over the coming weeks, that you would help us to better understand how to apply your truth in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yesterday was April 15th. What does April 15th mean? My mother's birthday. Pardon? Your mother's birthday. Okay, that's a good thing to remember. You don't want to forget that, right? Uh, I bet her birthday for many people has been overshadowed by that other thing, though. And yes, that's taxes, right? Yeah, the day before Jackie's birthday. So see, on a year that doesn't fall on a weekend, Jackie, look at this. It's so good. You get the taxes all over with before your birthday, right? And then you can move on to birthday. It's celebratory. Woo-hoo, this is great. Now, of course, this year, you may still have 
Some of you may still have taxes dwelling over your heads because, because it's on a weekend, it's been delayed. I don't know why it's delayed till Tuesday and not Monday, but it's due on the 18th. If you had forgotten, this is your public service announcement. Don't forget, your taxes are due. We, do have, we are talking about someday having a prison ministry, so if you forget to pay your taxes, maybe we can visit you. Does anyone like paying taxes? Okay, all of you are sane. None of us like paying taxes, right? Taxes are an everyday sort of burden. Maybe it doesn't feel every, like an everyday sort of thing because you get to that day and you fill out that return. I know I hate filling out my return because it, here's a little thing you, you may not know about doing work in a church. This is just a weird quirk in the way that pastors' taxes are handled. I, I don't know why this is, but if, if you're in pastoral ministry, they... they always put you down as self-employed. doesn't matter how big the church, how small the church, you're always self-employed. And so that means there aren't any withholdings, and so you get to tax day, and people will say, I was so excited, I filled out my tax return, and I got this refund. And, and of course, I think if we all think about it, we know the refund is, is just the money that should have been ours that got overpaid, but still, it still feels nice in that moment when that check comes or that direct deposit hits the account. Pastors don't get refunds. We just realize at the end of the year all the money that we need to pay. And, and so, yeah, you can feel sorry for us, you know. When, when you're celebrating that refund, think of whatever pastors are around you. Remember that they're instead getting to find out how much they owe. Yeah, yeah. Melanie's playing a violin for me. That's very nice. Yeah, thank you. I don't like paying taxes. I think most of us don't like paying taxes. Most of us would be happy if we could keep 100% of everything that we earned. It feels like a very ordinary problem. What Benjamin Franklin said, we can only count on two things, death and taxes. As Christians, we know there's more we can count on, and yet we know that those two do come, come too quickly. It just feels like, oh only I get out of my obligation to pay taxes. If only I get out of a lot of my obligations. And that's, I think, really oftentimes what it boils down to in our lives. We think if only I could get out of this obligation or that obligation, life would be so much easier. It'd be so much smoother. I'd be so much happier. I'd have a whole lot more money in the bank account. Hmm. If only. Now, Jesus in Matthew 17 has two very unordinary things that happen. Perhaps one of the most unordinary of all the occurrences in the Gospels, the transfiguration takes place in Matthew 17. So he goes to the mountaintop with Peter and James and John, and what happens, they see Elijah and Moses. And I mentioned a few weeks ago, I like to bring this up every once in a while, because we just finished with, with the story of Moses. Whenever I finish the story of Moses, I don't like to stop there. Because it's really important that, yes, Moses in his lifetime doesn't get to enter the promised land. But how wonderful. In that moment, in the transfiguration, he actually comes and is placed in the presence of Jesus doing earthly ministry, the fulfillment of everything the promised land was about. Now that's spectacular. Peter makes a confession of who Jesus is right in the midst of that. Jesus casts out a boy possessed by a demon in the midst of that. This is big stuff. This is the stuff that you get really excited about. And, and you think, wow, look how amazing everything is that's going on with Jesus in Matthew 17. He even foretells of his death and resurrection. 
in Matthew 17. And then it's tax day. Taxes always come and flatten out everything, right? They have to come right in the middle of the good stuff. And that's where we turn to Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. It says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Whoop. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you shall find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. That's an interesting little story, isn't it? Now, I have to say, if all of us could go and we could not have any taxes withheld, not have any tax bill due at April 15th, but we could just go fishing the week before April 15th, cast out... I'm not a fisherman, but I'd become one, I think, because, yeah, I'll just go fish and get my tax money. That's, That's pretty spectacular, isn't it? But it happens in an extremely ordinary moment. After all this spectacular stuff that's been happening in Matthew 17, what do we find here? Jesus and Peter owe taxes. And the teachers of the law want to know what Jesus is going to do about this. Because you see, there are exceptions to these taxes. There have been some, de- some people debating exactly which tax is at play, but it seems pretty clear that the two drachma tax was the temple tax. And that was established back in the time of Moses. It had gone up a little, a little bit of inflation going on here. But they had to pay with a special coin. They couldn't just pay with any coin. It was a rare coin. So you'd go, that's why you had money changers in the temple. They'd go in, they'd get their drachmas. And, and you say, well, they're asking about two drachma tax, but there's a shekel involved, the shekel inside the fish's mouth. What's going on here? Well, the shekel was more common than the drachma, and the shekel happened to be worth four drachmas. So oftentimes people would go together in pairs and pay the tax. That way they could pay with one shekel. Makes it nice and simple. So that, that's the basic tax there. Now, rabbis, as religious workers, were exempt from the two drachma tax. So it seems like part of the question here is, what's Jesus' angle here? Is he going to claim to be a legitimate rabbi who doesn't have to pay the two drachma tax? Or we kind of suspect he has revolutionary tendencies. He doesn't seem to like a lot of the things we do. Is he going to do something sort of ominous and try to overthrow the temple tax because we know he really wants to unseat the religious order? That's what they're thinking, I think. We're going to catch Jesus here. What's he going to do if we put him on the spot and say to Peter, we'll get the real answer there. We know Jesus. We know Jesus. He's going to try to somehow do some kind of mental gymnastics with us and wiggle out of this. So we'll ask Peter. Maybe they'd heard a little bit about Peter. He's, you know, the open mouth and cert foot kind of guy. We'll find out exactly what's really going on here. Maybe here we're seeing the, the beginnings of investigative journalism. They're going to get to the, to the root of this. 
And, and so it is that they want to know. Peter, what's your rabbi think about that tax? What does he think about taxes in general, perhaps even? Does he have anti-institutional tendencies? Is he an anarchist? Is he one of those hippies camping out trying to overthrow the government? What kind of person is Jesus really? Now, here's another interesting detail about this tax. Because it was a temple tax, they're going at it from an angle that might seem a little bit easier to get the truth about Jesus. Because you see, if they asked about one of the Roman taxes, Jesus would know, his disciples would know, if you don't pay the Roman tax, the Romans have a very simple solution. They kill you. It's not hard. Rome, Rome had a very straightforward way of enforcing its rules. It's known as the Pax Romana. They had overwhelming military force, and so people did what Rome wanted because they didn't want to die. It was really, really easy. The temple tax, though, is a Jewish tax. It's not enforced by the Roman government, and so it gave them an opportunity. What's Jesus going to do when he isn't facing the force of Rome? What's he going to do when it's merely the proper thing to do, not the thing that gets you to either live or die, that allows you to be free or imprisoned? What's he going to do when it's simply what the holy people do? That's what they're going after here. What's Jesus going to do? It's all about trapping him. It's not that different from another in inquiry about taxes a, a few chapters later in Matthew 22. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians and, and saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why did he put me to the test, you hypocrites? You see, they extend it there. Maybe they're thinking back to this earlier incident. They realize they didn't get Jesus there, but they thought, now we're going to get Jesus because on the one hand, the, the Jewish taxes can't be enforced legally. It's a, a matter of custom and, and principle. But if you were a good Jewish person, you thought, of course you should pay the two drachma tax. Of course you should support the work of the temple. On the other hand, there were varying opinions on what you should do about Roman taxes. Because you had the different parties of Jewish thought. You had the, the leaders who were mostly pro-establishment. They, they didn't really want to rock the boat with Rome because as long as they didn't rock the boat with Rome, Rome let them have a temple, Rome let them have synagogues, Rome let them insist on enforcing monotheism amongst their people, even though Rome thought it was kind of weird to only worship one god. Rome kind of looked the other way as long as they didn't rock the boat. But then you had the zealots. The zealots wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And the Pharisees and the other teachers of the law see Jesus, and they know that, that Jesus has this broad, big tent sort of following, as we would say today. You have some people on the political center of the moment, and you have some people on the more political fringes of the moment, and they want to see if they can get Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Because with this one, he can either choose to say, 
don't pay the tax. Then he sounds like the hero Messiah that, that's championing against the evil Roman Empire that's oppressing the people that is pagan and doesn't allow the Jews complete freedom and is constantly taxing them and just making their lives miserable and killing Jews whenever they uh, get too annoying in the eyes of the Roman soldiers. On the one hand, you can rally those people and they'll be really excited about you and they'll be excited about you all the way until, Roman kill, until the Roman guards come and kill you for advocating against Rome. So the teachers of the law think, ah, here's a way to maybe get Jesus out of our hair. We'll just have the Romans see that he's the troublemaker that we think he is and then they'll kill him. That's their one thought. The other thought, though, they, Jesus could say, well, go ahead and pay the tax. That keeps him aligned with the establishment, but suddenly takes the, the luster off of him as this new kind of teacher because now he sounds like all the other collaborators with Rome. He sounds like the swamp, as they might say today in political terminology, right? He sounds like all those people who are insiders. They've been in government too long. And the teachers of the law know that a lot of the people following Jesus will get really frustrated with him then. And they'll turn away. So they think they have him. But of course, therein lies one of Jesus' most famous sayings. People will quote it even if they don't know the Bible. Render unto Caesar. And render unto God. Yeah, see, okay, we, we all know that, right? We hear it. I, I've heard people who have no idea about what the Bible says about almost anything. They've heard that because it, it's very straightforward. We may not understand exactly what we're trying to accomplish there, but we, we know the phrase. It's one of those that sticks out. And Jesus says that, and once again, he doesn't accomplish what they were hoping for, which is to provide a nice, easy target. The challenge is that those who would see him answer the one way suddenly think he isn't revolutionary enough. Those who hear him answer the other way would think him too revolutionary. It was a no-win situation to which Jesus gives the true answer. Give to Caesar what God has allowed Caesar to demand. If, if Caesar is allowed to rule, then provide him with the tax that he asked for. And we see this over and over again in Scripture, and it's said over and over again in the New Testament where it clearly isn't popular to say. Ironically, though Rome executes Jesus as an insurrectionist, the Christians advocate time and again and again to respect the government. Because you see, the thing is, our calling is not to radically change government. Our calling isn't to make government good. Our calling is to declare God's kingdom, a different government, a government not of this world. And when we understand that, then we realize, well, what do we do with the government here, this messed up system that, and trust me, that's what every politician likes to say, right? Trust me, I'm going to fix everything for you. Well, here's something you can trust. Government will never get fixed. Government will never be good. Not until Jesus returns. It's always going to be bad. And yet, the New Testament writers know that and they say over and over again, but respect the government because God allows it to exist and it restrains evil. It may in itself be evil. And they knew that. They were being killed by the government. They understood that the government could be bad. And yet... 
And yet they realized it also existed out of God's pleasure in order to control evil. How do we make sense of this? How do we know when we're rendering to Caesar what is Caesar and, and what, when we're rendering to God what is God's? How do we know when we should pay the two drachma tax and when we should say, oh, that's just some stupid custom of yours, I'm not doing it? Well, the real question isn't, what even am I obliged to do? And that's what Jesus wants Peter to understand as he talks about taxes in Matthew 17 with him. The real question is, what am I communicating to others around me? Because my concern isn't myself. I've seen a lot of people reflecting back. I just cannot believe, I know I mentioned this before over the last few weeks, because my head just can't get my get itself around the idea that we are now three years out from the beginning of the COVID pandemic. It's just incredible to me. It feels like it was just yesterday that, that all that was happening. And incidentally, part of what wasn't happening in the midst of all that happening was the launch of Little Hills. We were supposed to launch about three years ago. Um, it was give or take a few days. I'm, I'm trying to think. I think it was like the 16th of April, something like that. So what do you know? It might actually, no, it couldn't be that. Anyway, it was, it was going to be a Sunday night, and it would have been the equivalent of this Sunday, three years ago. We weren't launching. And here was the challenge, whether you were a church that was about to launch like Little Hills, or you were an existing church, what do you do in the midst of a situation none of us had experienced before? And people got really, really mad over what the answer you came up with was. If you said, well, we're going to delay, that's what we did. We're going to wait because we think that maybe that's going to keep people safer and also because that's what our government said we should do. We shouldn't be gathering in groups and meeting. There were people who were incredibly, incredibly angry. A lot of pastors got blasted. Some of them were forced out of churches for doing that. On the other hand, some people said, well, we're going to go ahead and meet. Or once the regulations loosened a little bit, but not a lot, we'll go ahead and meet. And there was a lot of debate on that. And once you meet, do you wear masks or don't you wear masks? I just have to say masks, and I think everybody's blood pressure goes up because you're waiting. Okay, now what's it going to say? Is it going to say the right answer on this one, right? Because we get really, really, really passionate about masking or not masking. I remember very early on, someone, it was anonymous being passed around the internet, but it was so insightful, it said, Please be patient with your church because we've never done this before. We're trying to figure it out. We're trying to do what's right before God and, and before our culture, but we don't know what the right answers are because we're all learning in this. But it was really hard for us to pause in that moment. We had our opinions of what we were entitled to or whether that was we were entitled to being safe and closed or we were entitled to being open. People just got mad. It was a challenge balancing. But here's the thing that I noticed most of the time in most of those heated discussions. It was about what am I entitled to? Not what's right for the people around me, not what is right for God's glory, not what is right for the people that don't yet know Jesus that might come into the church someday, but what am I entitled to? When we deal with taxes, oftentimes when we complain about it, it is what am I entitled to? Am I, I shouldn't have to pay so many taxes. Those people should pay more taxes because they're, they're not me and I want them to pay taxes, but not me, right? Taxes always look greener on the other side of the fence. But here's the thing that we see in the New Testament and the Old Testament. 
But as we think about God's kingdom as our mission as disciples, it's not about what makes me comfortable. It's not about what I feel like I'm entitled to. That's not what a disciple of Jesus worries about. Yes, we do because we're sinful, but may it not be. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Paul isn't saying there, be wishy-washy. He's not saying don't have principles. What he's saying is, quit worrying about what I'm entitled. I'm not going to worry about what I'm entitled to. You guys in, in Church of Corinth, don't worry about what you're entitled to. Worry about what will bring people into God's kingdom. Because the moment we start to worry about what we deserve, whether it's lower taxes, masking, non-masking, whatever it might be, is whenever it's about me, I'm not actually doing what God's called me to do. That's the first principle I think we see here. Because notice what Jesus is talking about. Notice what he says here when he's talking to Peter. Jesus said in verse 26, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea. Not to give offense to them. He doesn't say, we owe the tax. We should pay the tax. He doesn't say, oh, I can't believe I forgot to file my two drachma return this year. He says, we're not going to give offense to them. Go ahead and pay it. That's the first principle that Jesus wants him to understand. We shouldn't avoid our obligations by spiritualizing them. We shouldn't say, well, I am going to be holy, and so therefore I don't need to do this thing that everyone else is doing. I don't need to pay my taxes. I don't need to follow government regulations. Now, we get into a lot of nuance there. And certainly there are times that government regulations clearly, clearly violate God's law. However, we need to understand that's the exception, not the rule. Most of the time, at best, excuse me, at worst, government regulations simply don't interact much with God's law at all. Sometimes they interact with it a great deal, like when the government enforces laws about murder, it's enforcing God's law. That's a good thing. When it enforces people having a deed to land and protecting it, someone else can't come and just take it, it's, it's enforcing God's law. When it levies a certain level of tax on us, God's allowed governments for all ages to take taxes. We may like them more or less at certain times, but we shouldn't spiritualize it and say, well, I am a member of the kingdom of heaven, so I don't need to pay this tax. You're welcome to try it. I don't think the IRS agent that comes to visit you eventually will take very kindly to it. But more importantly, it would hurt your witness. And that's what we need to be concerned about, whether it's, I hope we don't have another pandemic, but whether it's pandemic regulations, whether it's tax regulations, whether it's city ordinances, whether it's how we're driving and respecting the law as we drive, all these things, what we need to be worried about is what is my witness to other people, not whether or not I think I'm obliged to follow it. And see, that makes it so much more simple because when we're worried about, am I obliged to do this or can I demand my rights? The thing that happens is we always interpret it in a way that's pro-us. And we spend an awful lot of time thinking about, well, how much do I have to do before I can get away with something? 
When we're thinking about other people, though, it becomes really simple. Well, what's it going to look like if the followers of Jesus are being hauled off to jail because they won't pay their taxes? Is that going to make anyone who isn't already a Christian think, oh boy, I want to, those people, they're so wonderful. They don't pay the taxes. I've been paying all their taxes for them because they don't pay their taxes. No, it's not going to do anything to draw more people into the kingdom. It's sort of like the infamous Christian tip at the restaurant you, you hear about. And I've never worked in, in the service industry like that where I've been awaiting a tip, but you, you see the pictures. They go viral online now where someone thinks, well, I'm not really obliged to pay a tip. I'm going to leave this tract instead. And, and, and I'll spiritualize it. I'll feel so good about it because I'm telling the person about how they can receive eternal life that's so much better than that $5 bill that I should have put down on the table. I mean, how can you compare eternal life to a $5 bill? The only problem is if you don't already believe in Jesus, if you don't already think there's anything to it, when you look at that, that looks worthless and all you can think is there's a cheapskate. The concern isn't, are, am I obliged or not? The concern is, what am I communicating to the world? And, and may it be that even if we're not obliged to give the tip, even if we're not obliged to pay the tax, even if we're not obliged to do these things, that we do what appears respectful and peaceable and caring for our neighbors, go above and beyond even when we don't think it's necessary because we love them so much that we're willing to quit thinking about what am I deserving of. Not because we have to, but because we look at what Jesus did when he didn't have to. We know that that's what he calls us to do too. And I believe that's why we have this everyday Jesus story here of Jesus paying tax. Now, he does have a supernatural means of paying it. We can't all go fishing and get our tax payment. But that's to communicate this truth that it's not out of obligation. Jesus wasn't worried about getting kicked out of the synagogue and that's why he paid it. It wasn't peer pressure. It was concerned that he didn't want to scandalize anyone and cause them not to hear about the kingdom. Let's look at this once more. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. What's this establish? How many uh, fisher people do we have here? If you're online, maybe you can say too, you can post a fish emoji or something. Okay, we have one in person, I think, one fisherman here. Do we have anyone online? Share your fishing stories. You can say about how big you got your fish and all that. Of course, you know, prove that you're a fisherman by expanding your fish. But I would bet most of you have not bragged about fishing out taxes before because it doesn't normally happen. As nice as it would be if that was what we meant by liquid assets, it usually isn't. And yet here it happens. And why? Why does Jesus do a miracle here? It's to say that he has power over this. He's not obliged. It compounds the fact that he says the reason he's doing it is to not scandalize others, to not cause someone else to stumble. He's saying, I can make a fish deliver the tax money. I don't need to pay taxes. I'm Lord over all of creation, even the fish swimming in the sea. I'm going to pay anyway. In that everyday moment where Jesus chooses to pay that tax, even though he's so powerful, that the fish of the sea deliver the tax payment for him. 
He gives us an idea of how we respond to our everyday obligations as well. Romans 13, verse 1, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of a God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Whatever God allows the people who minister to us as officials of the state, whatever they rightly demand, respect, taxes, obedience, Paul says pay it. Keep in mind Paul's going to be martyred by the government. Keep in mind Paul already sees martyrdom coming. He already knows it's happened. He's been part of the government martyring people in the past, the, the, the religious establishment. And yet he says respect these people. Now, thankfully, most of us live in the... Maybe you're tuning online and you're in some place that has a repressive government. Thankfully, for most of us, we aren't, and and praise God for that. So when we feel like our government is bearing down on us, at least it's not taking our lives, we should be thankful for that every single day. Now, what do we do as far as when the government is unfair, though? We need to understand what civil disobedience looks like. And when it's appropriate. Jesus could have committed civil disobedience against an unjust religious establishment that wasn't truly doing the will of God by refusing to pay this tax. He could have done it, but he didn't because it wasn't necessary. God didn't prohibit paying a two drachma tax. He didn't say it would be bad to pay a two drachma tax. Now, if, on the other hand, the religious leaders had said to Jesus, don't you dare preach the gospel, don't you dare talk about your kingdom coming, you can be sure he would have ignored them. In fact, in the New Testament, we see over and over again those times when those who are in authority try to prohibit the proclamation of the gospel, they refuse to comply. Because that's a direct violation of God's command. God has commanded us to communicate the gospel, to share his kingdom, and no earthly authority can prohibit us from doing that. Now, does that mean we should do it every way, no matter how disrespectful it is? No. We can respect that there's a a way to do it that doesn't cause scandal. For us at Little Hills, as part of that involved, we went on to live streaming at the time when no one was supposed to be gathering together because they were trying to to shut down the pandemic. And, And I realize there are deeply held opinions here on whether all that was wise or not. I'm not really trying to get into that. What I can say, though, is that it we could see that God had provided an outlet by which we could communicate the gospel to people. At Little Hills, we met people that we never would have met otherwise through that means. 
And we didn't have to cause scandal to do it. We didn't have to have police showing up and trying to haul us out of the building because we were meeting when we weren't supposed to be. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. We can find ways to respect what government asks of us most of the time. Those times that we refuse to comply with government should be those extreme times when the only way to comply with what they're asking us to do is to directly violate God's law. Because our concern isn't what's convenient or comfortable, what we think should be. Our concern is not to violate our conscience and not to violate the consciences of those around us who don't yet know Jesus. And I saw a lot of churches getting really, really angry. And you see this for different issues. Certainly the pandemic. Sometimes it's it's other issues about taxes or, or building codes or whatever else. If the building code seems inconvenient to us, and maybe someday we'll be building a building because we need more space and we're building that building and it's really frustrating and I'm going to wish I'd never said this, but if the building code seems inconvenient, but they're not applying it unfairly only to churches, they're applying it to everyone, they're, they're just, it just doesn't make sense to us, may we comply with it even when it's inconvenient because it's not about us. May we show respect to that building inspector even if it's frustrating because my concern isn't, is the building inspector making life easy for me? My concern is, does the building inspector know Jesus? Because God works even through people in government who seem to act in terribly unjust ways. In Isaiah 45, for example, the title Messiah is actually applied to Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, not a nice man. He does some nice things for God's people, but he's not a nice man. Why is it applied? Because God has allowed him to govern in that moment. And so every day Jesus pays the tax, not because he needs to, but because his point isn't to overthrow government. His point isn't to demand what is his. It's to do what causes people to understand the kingdom. And so he establishes with Peter, you know, I'm not obliged to do this. I'm the son. And the son doesn't pay taxes. The prince doesn't pay taxes. But I'm going to pay it anyway because my point isn't to establish who I am. So the same for us. But in that, we rejoice in whom it is that God says we are. Galatians 4. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We see here is that tax is paid for by Peter's fishing expedition. God's reminding Peter of something. He provides for him. Now that's the least everyday part of this story. Again, most of us aren't going to go fishing and, and fish up enough money for any kind of bill. But when we have the money to pay that bill, we're reminded of God's provision. When we have food on the table, we're reminded of God's provision. If you don't have food on the table, but you get connected with a local food bank, we have a list of them here, and you receive food, you're reminded of God's provision. We are the hands and feet of Jesus helping to provide that provision at times. But it's God's provision 
doesn't take away from the fact that we're sons and daughters of God. We don't have to demand everything that feels like we're entitled to to understand that God's providing. On the contrary, as we, provide, as we pay taxes, as we do things to comply with government, as we do all this stuff, and God empowers us to do it, and God provides the means that his church goes forward even when it's inconvenient, what are we reminded of? That he cares enough to keep empowering us to do it. Have you ever been to a car wash and you go in and it's not working right? I've had this happen a few times. It seems like car washes aren't always the best maintained, especially the self-service ones, and you go in and thankfully someone maybe is on staff and it turns out to be the owner's son. That also happens sometimes because car washes often don't have huge staffs, right? So you have someone show up. They're, they're, they're not required to pay for a car wash, but what do they do when they come over to figure out why your, your, your stall isn't turning on? They take a token that's meant to activate the car wash, right? It's worth $5 or whatever, and they stick it in. And I've had this happen a number of times. Here, I, I can take care of this for you. And they stick the token in, the car wash springs to life. Now, is that indicating that the person isn't obliged, isn't entitled to a free car wash, that they don't really have rights to that car wash? No, not at all. What it's saying is there's this established structure of how the car wash turns on. You put a coin in. It needs something to go in to turn on. And that person is willing to do that in order not to destroy the car wash by ripping out the panel and, and trying to manually turn the water on just to get the car wash on. The person puts in the coin instead. You know, it, or maybe it's at, at your work or your school, you go in and there's a vending machine and you go and get the person because you put your, your money in, nothing comes out. You would hope the, the person doesn't come out of the office and punch a giant hole in the soda machine and, and reach in and grab a, a can of soda. No, they're going to probably have some kind of dummy coin or something they put in to reactivate it or something. Same reason. They're not trying to destroy something that generally is good. We shouldn't try to destroy something that's generally good. We, we respect the government. We respect regulations. We respect the needs of others. But we understand as God provides for us so we have those tokens to put into the machine to turn it on that's speaking about who he is and how he loves us and so even as we do our earthly obligations that seem to take us further and further away from god it doesn't feel like we're sons and daughters of god in this moment we're reminded that we're children of god we have a heavenly father who provides for us so we can do this because we want more people to experience being children of god too would you pray with me, please? Father, would you help us to see those places in, in our lives? Maybe taxes, we certainly are thinking about that on, a, on the week they're due, but it could be all kinds of things in, in, our, in our places of work, our, our places of study, our, our, our neighborhoods, our cities, our, our states, our countries. Lots of things that seem to place obligations on us, even ones we don't think we should have to comply with. But Lord, as we comply, would you help us to see that you've given us even the ability to do that and to rejoice in the fact that you've established systems that keep this world at least less chaotic, that protect most life, even though it's imperfect. Would you help us to give thanks even for that and be reminded of your care in that? Would you help us in all this to be concerned not with what's best for us, but it's best to bring more people into your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.